And if you have your Bible, we're in the book of Acts. It's going to be chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. If you're a user of the Bible app, you can jump on uh, that right now, open that up, and uh, track along with our live event, um, which you can find uh, pretty easily. You can also link it off our Facebook page and stuff. The book of Acts, chapter one, we're going to start in verse four, work our way down uh, to verse 14 eventually. Ready? Verse four, and while staying with them, He, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, uh, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit uh, not many days from now. Some of you, the translation that you may have in verse 4, while eating with them, uh, either staying or eating, that word could go either way. You get the idea that Jesus is engaged in their everyday life. There's not a spiritual life spinning out here. And then kind of other, other life. Indeed, Jesus is with them, eating with them, hanging with them, staying with them, being with them. And then Jesus is speaking to them as he's doing that. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And, a while, um, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, not some other Jesus, by the way, this Jesus, uh, who has taken up, who was taken up, um, from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's just pause right there. We'll pick up the last three verses in a minute. Uh, Just pause right there and talk for a second about focus. I want to frame this out in three different questions, but let's, let's bring into focus this, let this passage actually bring some things into focus uh, in our lives. Uh, three questions. Here's, here's one question that's a focus kind of question. Wipe the stuff out of your eyes. Seeing clearly. Question, how big is the kingdom that you seek? Jesus said in Matthew 6, Luke 6, uh, um, uh, excuse me, Luke 11, I think, and Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these other things, they will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. So how big is the kingdom that you're seeking? I say that because on occasion, you and I get distracted by things, we get thrown off by things, we get uh, uh, spun around, if you will, and we end up facing the wrong way on things, or our eyes are just not quite in focus. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What did they expect? What did they expect? They expected what kind of kingdom? An earthly kingdom. Right here, right now, geopolitical. And listen, let's not give them grief on this, okay? Jesus didn't blast them. He didn't put them on blast for this. They, here we are. We're in Jerusalem. We have a king, a Messiah, who is very clear. He's died and come back from the dead just like he said he would. Now's the time we should kick all the bad guys out. Who's with me? Is everybody with me? You and I, we would get in line and behind that. We would jump in on that. You and I would be probably in the same kind of boat. We would think we're in Jerusalem. We got the king. It's time for the kingdom to come. It makes sense that he would restore the kingdom right then. How big is the kingdom that you seek? 
at this time, restore Israel. I mean, he's talking about a local, they're thinking about the Davidic kingdom, David's kingdom from way on back. And now here they are occupied by Rome. Surely now is the time when Jesus is going to kick them out. Surely now is the time when it's all going to be right in our culture. Can I make a confession? It worries me sometimes as a pastor for my own life and for our church and for the church more broadly that we do the same thing with America. God, at this time, are you going to restore June Cleaver to the... uh... God, is it at this time when we'll go back to the good old days? Aren't you kind of being down on America? Listen, I am so patriotic. Believe me, I'm so patriotic that I want what's best for the country. And what's best for the country is for the church to be the church. So here's the thing. Like if you get locked in on that, if you get locked in, you'll miss a lot. Like to focus on the, the, the kingdom or, or to, to misconstrue, to get bleary-eyed and not have it clear um, that the kingdom of God is, is bigger than a single country. What that makes God is a geographically located God. And I, I just think Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and that, that's the kingdom that we seek. Um, Isaiah 49, uh, verse 6, 5 and 6, but this is verse 6. Ready? The Lord says, it is too light. Some of you, if you were to flip over to your translation right now, it would say too small indeed. Those too light, too small. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved ones of Israel. That sounds a lot like, is it at this time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I will make you as a light for how long? How, the nations that my salvation may reach how far? Somebody say it out loud, please. To the end of the earth. That's how amazing and glorious this God is, is that his salvation comes at a single moment in history and place, and then it blows up from there to reach the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing to get locked on on one little moment, one little place. Man, this is going for all time and to all people, everywhere and to everybody. I think you and I sometimes are in danger of suffering from this kind of spiritual myopia where we lock our nose in right here in the 830 service. I actually had them do this, put their Bibles up this close. I wish somebody would have taken a picture because it was pretty funny looking. And I asked this question, can anybody read what's actually on the page? And what's the answer? No, you have to pull it back. You have to pull back in order to gain perspective, to actually see with clarity and see the context of what's going on. And indeed, if you and I are so locked in on one particular moment, one particular place, and don't pull back, what we miss is that God is way too big for such a small longing. It's too small a desire. And that small desire reflects too small of an understanding of who God is. And he promises something bigger and he promises something better. And what does he promise? Look at verse eight. But you, what does it say? Will, there's the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. 
What does he promise? He promises us the Spirit of God. He promises us himself. He's going to give us himself. And when you and I get out of this kind of small, uh, um, uh, small-mindedness, this too small of a thing, and can expand to see what's going on around us. When you and I pull back so that we gain some perspective, we gain some clarity, we see the context of the things God is doing, what, what comes into focus is there is a kingdom of God that is coming upon the earth, and, and it's, it's incredible, and it's huge. It reaches to the very ends of the earth because God is not some geographically located king. He's the king over everything. How big is the kingdom that you seek? And let's let our hearts expand until we're seeking a kingdom that's as big as he is. He promises the Spirit in verse 8. And and so this is the question that should help us bring some things into focus. How big is the kingdom you seek? Let it be as big as the king is. And then secondly, what does the Spirit compel us to do? Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does the Spirit compel us to do? Let's bring that into focus. What, is it, what does he compel us to do? He compels us to be his witnesses, witnesses who are faithful to the very end. And so uh, let, let's talk about how this kind of plays out. You will receive power or strength when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The, the Greek word for that is dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S would be the transliteration, okay? Du- like dynamic, dynamite, right? In other words, something gets lit, if you will, inside of you. Students, God lit something in some of you this weekend, and it ought not be able to be contained. You got dynamite blowing up inside of you. That, I mean, that's something that doesn't get contained. May it be. Some of the other people around here need some of you to blow up on us. So the things that God has lit inside of us, you will receive power Lighting, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you shall be my witnesses. What kind of witnesses are we talking about? Oh, witnesses who are faithful to the very end, no matter how much it costs. Why? How would you say that? The Greek word for witnesses is marturo, M-A-R-T-U-R-O. We, we pick this up, our word that we translate in our martyr. What kind of witnesses are we talking about? We're talking about witnesses who are faithful to the very end, even if it costs us our life. We're going to be faithful to the very end. Why? Because God has so lit something inside of us that we cannot and will not change. We are going to be faithful to the very end. What does the Spirit compel us to do? He compels us to be his witnesses to the very end, faithful witnesses to the very end. And um, we witness wherever we go um, and everywhere that we go. And the scope of this is, is not parochial, okay? Look, look at what he does. Verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. And then he starts where? In Jerusalem. And you can look at the book of Acts as it unfolds, and this is almost a table of contents because we've got Jerusalem ministry, and then broader Judea ministry, and we've got Samaria ministry, and we've got into the earth ministry. And he starts there, just starts in Jerusalem. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit um, comes upon you. You will be my witnesses, and it starts in Jerusalem. Hey, we've done some good ministry in Jerusalem lately. Like in our particular Jerusalem, um, we, we have done some really, really good ministry. So we're not saying anybody needs to neglect local ministry. That's not it at all. 
It's important that we do that. And then it expands from there to all Judea. Not some of Judea, by the way, all of Judea. The scope of it starts small, but it begins expanding. Judea, the place where people are kind of like us, right? Where you kind of get this sense that, oh, okay, we kind of share some things in common, this broader perspective. And then he says, Samaria. Anybody? Samaria? Anybody? This is the place that nobody wants to go. Samaria, if you're a good Jewish boy or a good Jewish girl, that's the place that you avoid. It's the other side of the tracks. There are half-breeds over there. Drop every, every uh, name that you would want to, and you would apply it to people like that in Samaria. And Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, what's going to happen? You're going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to expand into Judea and Samaria also. You will be sent to places that aren't necessarily nice places to go. And then... If if that's not enough, he's going to send you where? To the very ends of the earth. Now, our our church is committed. We we have done some great, let me just say, we've done some great ministry in, in this area, Jerusalem. We've done some good ministry here. And it's expanded, and we've gone to places that we wouldn't want to go, but we're also committed to the ends of the earth. Hey, listen, in March, we're sending a team, some of our our students and some of our adults, um, to Northeast England. But why? Because Jesus sends people to the ends of the earth, and you can see it from Northeast England almost. (laughs) Pretty pretty dark up there. Pretty dark. we, we have teams that go uh, to Bolivia. We don't have one on the radar right this second because we've been uh, doing Harvey stuff, but we're hoping in 2018 to get back down to Bolivia to serve um, orphans and uh, the ministry, Fundacion Esperanza, down there. Um, come end of April, um, first part of May, we're going to look at about six or eight of you uh, and say, hey, we, we want you to block that time out because we want you to go serve a ministry team in Turkey. Brand new, fresh out of the box. Uh, like the past, what, two weeks, Keith, something like that. Uh, if you're interested, Keith Splon's right here. Find him later, okay? Uh, we're, we're looking at that. Um, to, to, like, we want to be a part of this kind of global mission of God. Why? Because that's where the Spirit compels us to go. Some of these countries are really fun to go to. Some of them are not. Some of them are, are, are really wonderful and beautiful, and some of them are hard places. And God sends us to both kinds. He sends us to, to, to the kinds that people approve of and the kinds that people reject. He sends us to all of those kind of people. Why? Because he's a global God and you and I are getting on his global agenda to the ends of the earth. Well, I mean, come on. Man. Aren't we just supposed to just follow Jesus, and, you know, grow and be like him? That kind of, yes, yes, we are. As a matter of fact, Leslie Newbegin, who spent 40 years in India, picked this kind of thought up when he said this. Mission is not a one-way promotion. Hey, I don't just show up and be like, here you go, people, here I am. It's not a one-way promotion, but a two-way encounter in which we learn more of what the gospel means. People go off and they serve in England, they serve in Bolivia, they serve in Turkey. They serve in other areas. What do we figure out? Not I'm showing up and just, voila. Instead, I'm figuring out, hey, I get more of what the gospel means too. Aren't we just supposed to follow Jesus? Yes, that's exactly right. And ways in, in, so you follow Jesus where he goes and he's going to the ends of the earth. And secondly, when you follow him there, you learn more of what the gospel means. Well, I mean, but really, aren't we supposed to just kind of take care 
things around us. We've done some good taking care of things around us. That is true. Newbigin picks up this next argument. He says this, same book. Foreign missions are not an extra. Well, here we go. We got kids ministry and Clyde student, student ministry. It's good. Uh, you know, we got Sunday school and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got this tack on over here, foreign missions stuff. No, 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 no. Foreign missions are not an extra. They're only, listen, church, they're only an extra if Acts 1-8 is not really in the Bible. Because it's not or, not Jerusalem, or all Judea, or Samaria, or the ends of the earth. What's, what's the, uh, the, the word there? What's the connecting word? And. Jerusalem and all Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Foreign missions are not an extra. They're not some tackle. They are the acid test of whether or not the church believes the gospel. If we believe it, there are people out there who need it. And so we go. What does the Spirit compel us to do? He compels us outward to the ends of the earth to be his witnesses, lit up inside and faithful to the very end. Okay. Got a little fired up about that. Can, can, I promise I'm going to go back on to ask Aaron just a second. Can, can I say this one thing? This one thing. There is not a country that we won't go to if Jesus sends us. Because every country full of every people are beloved by the God who made them. Third question, bring this into focus. How big is this kingdom that you seek? It's worldwide. What does the Spirit compel us to do? He compels us to be His witnesses to the end, faithful to the end and to the ends of the earth. And last question, how, how amazing, how incredible is this Lord that we're serving? This God that we're following, how awesome is He? And here's the, here's the, the quick answer here. It shows up in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Uh, Luke 24, the resurrection account in Luke, same author as Acts. Luke has two angels at the tomb talking to the, the women there. And, and, and I just, in my mind, these are the same two angels. I, they're like, oh, 40 days. We got to stick around for this long to make sure these people get it right. Like in my mind, that's how that went. It's two, it's two, no matter what. Verse 11, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So here we are, Peter, James, Sean, all the others, they're standing there watching, talking to Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, let's go back to Jerusalem. Wait, the Spirit's going to come. It's going to be awesome. You're going to be my witnesses. Can't wait for this to go down. And then like stuff starts happening. He starts floating in a cloud. And all of them are just sitting there, slack-jawed, tongue hanging out, drooling their beard, going, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. Somebody catch this on YouTube, man. Put it down. Thankfully, they didn't have cell phones. Can you imagine being like, look, selfie, you know, with Jesus and the ascension thing. Thankfully, that didn't go down that way. How incredible is this Lord that we serve and follow? What they figured out was he's a resurrected king. He is alive. You and I serve a living Lord. He's not dead, folks. He's alive. 
He didn't get up on out of here and then just cease to exist. He's alive. And they, this was so clear. We'll see it when we get to uh, the second chapter. This is so clear that when they talked resurrection, they also talked ascension because those two things fit in their minds together that he, the living one, had gone somewhere and then he was coming back, which is what he said. This, this resurrected king, this living Lord. And then you've got this incredible, glorious moment where he's lifted up right before their eyes and he is an exalted Lord. That's an incredible thing. He is right now in this moment, seated at the right hand of God, completing uh, the work that uh, God has given him to do there. And then one day, thankfully, and, and praying for us while he's there. And then one day, thankfully, he's coming back. And that's what he said. This Jesus, not some other Jesus, this Jesus whom you've seen. He's going to come back just like he left. So get ready. Here he's, here's, he's, he says in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm praying for you while I'm there. And some point the father's going to look at me and says, okay, son, it's time. And I am going to split the sky open and come in on a white horse, a sword coming out of my mouth. And when I show up, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and everything will start working like it's supposed to start working. When the apostles preach, that's how they preach. Hey, Jesus died and he rose from the dead and he got on up out of here and he's coming back. So get ready. That's how they preach. So how incredible is this Lord that we follow? He's that kind of incredible. How big is the kingdom? Worldwide and bigger than that. What does the Spirit compel us to do? To witness to that. And What's our motivation? We follow the most amazing leader ever. We follow Jesus. So in light of that, what are we supposed to do? Glad you asked. Here's the response. Look at verse 12. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Why did they go back to Jerusalem? Well, look back at verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from where? Jerusalem. Okay, so this is important. Um, their first step of response is obedience. Hey, don't leave Jerusalem. Okay, we won't leave Jerusalem. Uh, question, just quickly for a moment. Like, was Jerusalem a uniquely safe place for followers of Jesus at that moment? They killed him. What do you think was going to happen to his followers? They'd kill them too. Sometimes the obedience that Jesus um, asks of us, even demands of us, commands for us, is not easy stuff. But our response then is still obedience. There's, there's two parts to this. One of these is typically harder for you than the other. There's the go back to Jerusalem. So there's the going back, the, the, the doing part, and wait for the Spirit. So doing, waiting, doing, waiting. One of those is harder for you than another. Just based upon what I know of our population and our people, we are not awesome waiters. You need a plan. You got a flow chart for that plan. You're ready to put that sucker into action. You walk out of every meeting with three bullet points, right? I mean, this is what we do. This is how we live. So the hard part for you may not be 
go do this. The hard part may be, wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And you're like, oh, waiting? One of those two is typically more difficult than the other. But when we're waiting, it's his promise that sustains us. And what is his promise? His promise is himself. He gives us himself. And when we're doing, when we're going, when we're out in action, in action mode, it's his presence that accompanies us where, where we go. And again, sometimes he asks us to go to hard places and do hard things. Second part is in verse 13. Part of our response is obedience, verse 13. Um, and then there's this part. And when they had entered Jerusalem, that is, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Part of their response was gathering. Part of their response was gathering. Why? Why is this so important? Why is sitting in this room an important part of your following Jesus? Why is going to Sunday school or going to small group or being connected in some circle like that where you can look at people's eyes, why is that such an important part of this? Why, why is it important to be connected on this relational level? It's precisely because this relational connection can actually prompt, if you will, or encourage or stoke um, our individual obedience. God asked me to do something, and I'm like, I don't know if I've got the courage. If I'm sitting in a room, and i got brothers and sisters around me, and they go, come on, man, you can do this. You can lay this down, or you can take this up, or you can confess this, or you can pray this way, or you can um, go and, and, and share in this moment. If I've got brothers and sisters around me who are holding me to that and holding me up in that, my individual obedience can be stoked by my relational connection. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, folks. You're not going to tackle this by yourself. We need one another. So we need the gathering. And indeed, in this particular instance, these guys, 10 days they gathered and they waited. And then lastly, what did they do when they were waiting? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to their social media platforms so they could move, build their movement and really make it. Now, what did they devote themselves to? What's it say? To prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Their dependence on God, their waiting looked like dependence, and their dependence was expressed in prayer. So, so what does yours look like? Here, I, God, we don't want to miss an opportunity ever to be dependent upon you. What does your dependence look like? Obedience, gathering, prayer. Out of those three things, out of those three things, in light of what Jesus has commanded us and what the Spirit compels us to do, which one of those do you need to focus on? Has God asked you to do something? Has he invited you into a relationship in some way? Or do you need to pour out your heart and express yourself in the dependence that you have in prayer? Students, listen, I know you're tired. In light of what you experienced this weekend, in light of all that God said and did in you this weekend, do you need to walk something out? you need to sit with somebody? Or do you need to pour out your heart to God in some way? Adults, same question. In light of all that God is doing, which one of those do you need to lock in on first? Obedience. 
gathering in prayer. I'm going to pray right now. I want us to just have a moment. We'll sing in just a second. For I just want to have a moment where we can ask God that question and let Him answer, okay? Again, Father, I just I confess that, man, some of us are just beat tired, and that's all right. You know that um, bodies need rest. But I ask for just this moment, you would speak to your people about some specific thing that they need to walk out. Obedience. Commitment to be relationally connected and not... not untethered or prayer. Spirit, continue to speak to your people. Let us know what we need to do. Thanks for how you met these students this weekend. Thanks for meeting us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name.